Uh, hopefully we'll be back in the building at some point here in the new year. Uh, I don't, I'm not holding my breath, but hopefully. Speaking of new year, happy new year, everyone. Welcome to 2021. Hope you had a nice new year's Eve uh, together with family. We're jumping back into first and second Samuel today. And for the next foreseeable future, we'll be in second Samuel. But it's been a long time since we were in first Samuel. Um, and I forgot some of the details, how the details went. So I thought I'd start today with just a summary, not of all of First Samuel, but just the last three or four chapters, which are part of a continuous story and, and lead up to our story today. So um, chapters 27 to 31 and, and into chapter 1 of Second Samuel are part of this ongoing story that carries over into the next book. And chapter 27 starting at 27, starts how David ends up with the Philistines. Um, and he he says that he's fighting against Judah, his own people. He lies to the Philistines saying he's fighting against his own people. So they're like, hey, that's great. You can stay with us. But really what he's doing while he's staying there is he's fighting against Judah's enemies. That's 27. Later, David is released from an uncomfortable and untenable situation, a catch-22 situation of having to either fight Either fight against Israel and lose claim to the throne, or fight against the Philistines and lose the Philistine protection that he's enjoying. Um, and he gets out of that catch-22 because the Philistine leaders don't trust him, and they send him home. So that's chapter 29. Meanwhile, while those chapters are telling of the rise of David, they're also telling of the fall, the last downfall of King Saul, who is desperate for support and advice and he turns to illegal means to seek it. He ends up uh, in the, the home of a witch, the seer of Endor. And he communes with the dead spirit of Samuel. And Samuel was the powerful voice of God for whom these books are named. But rather than comfort, this ghost of Samuel gives him a dreadful prophecy that by this time tomorrow, Saul and his sons will all be dead and Israel will be completely routed by the Philistines. In other words, it's utter failure for the king, and he ends up depressed on the couch because of it. That's chapter 28. At the same time that Saul is hearing that awful prophecy of a downward trajectory, David is once again experiencing upward tra trajectory. He's experiencing victory. Hi, Lisa and Yella. Morning. Um, after the Philistines send David home to Ziklag, they don't trust him, so they send him home. And when he gets home to Ziklag, he finds that, that his town has been raided by the Amalekites. These Amalekites are a constant thorn in Israel's side. In fact, Samuel has just reminded Saul the night before he dies. Samuel's just reminded Saul that, hey, it was against these Amalekites that you were disobedient and lost your claim to the throne. Um, so it's because of the Amalekites that Saul goes downwards. And now David... It finds that the Amalekites have kidnapped everyone he loves and have raided the town. So he goes chasing after the Amalekites and he soundly defeats them. He gets back everything the Amalekites took from them. Not a person was killed. Not a thing was stolen. And that's chapter 30. And that's where we end off. As we'll see today, uh, it's not the last time that David will encounter an Amalekite. So to summarize, David and Saul, they will never cross paths again though their lives are no less linked now than they were when Saul was hunting down his former young servant and warrior, David. David continues his ascent. Um, he has favor from both friends and enemies alike. 
He has conquered the Amalekites, the, the very nation that caused Saul's downfall. His trust in Yahweh is patient and unwavering, even in the face of terrible catch-22s and extreme loss. He will receive the kingship from his greatest nemesis, Saul, whom he still respects. Saul, however, is about to receive the death that his faithless life warrants, undignified, gruesome, and despairing. He has not heeded the direction of the true king of Israel, Yahweh, and is therefore an illegitimate figurehead on the throne. He has no real power. He's just stuffed shirt, basically. His life is a warning to all future kings and leaders, and really his life is a warning to all people of any kind. Give your life over to God, remain humble and selfless, and serve the people around you. If you can't do that, then you will forfeit your empty crown, forfeit your self-serving kingdom, and forfeit your empty life. So Saul will soon hand over his kingship to his greatest nemesis, David, whom he has never respected. So Saul, he's on his final downward. David is on his continued upward ascent. Their paths will never cross again, but their stories are still linked, as we'll see in chapter 31 and chapter 1 today. So that'll be later on. Uh, For communion, I'm going to pass it over to Bill. Morning, everyone. Morning. Um, I guess uh, preparing for communion this morning, I was hoping I could try and be as upbeat and uh, optimistic optimistic as I could going into the new year, and I I hope that I'll get that way. Anyway, (laughs) um, so I thought I'd perhaps read from... uh, uh, some of Paul's letters. Actually, I think I'll read from Colossians 3, and I'll start at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of gratitude, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so I guess, uh, you know, again in Paul's letters, you know, he was, you know, always trying to, uh, I think, to start with with his letters, he would certainly try and be as uplifting as he could. I'll turn it back over to you, Chris. That was pretty short and sweet. <laughs> yes it was thank you Bill oh man <clears throat> every single time Angie gets these crackers for communion they try to kill me every single time good old gluten free <laughs> <clears throat> sorry thank you Bill and you're right Paul does there's always that upbeat element um, there's always hope and he, he mentions peace I'll be honest my sermon today not very upbeat at all. Um, but even as we get into the not upbeatness of the sermon, it's important to remember what you just read, that we have peace together, that we have joy together, all the things we just talked about at Advent. All right, friends, let's uh, get back into scripture here. Today, this is the end. This is the end, not only of First Samuel, but the end of Saul's life and kingship. And not only the end of 1 Samuel, and not only the end of Saul's life and kingship, but the end of half a book's worth of build-up 
towards an, an inevitable lesson regarding who is fit to lead God's people. Is it the sitting monarch who is deaf to God's word, who is, excuse me, driven by self-serving religion, who is blinded by bitter jealousy? Is he fit to lead? Or is it the courageous warrior, heartfelt poet, and selfless leader who relies faithfully on Yahweh at all times, focusing on what benefits God's people? Is he the one who's fit to lead? We've known what the answer would be for 15 chapters or so ever since David came on the scene. Um, We've known that Saul was rejected for his blatant disobedience and disregard of God's leadership. We've known that David was destined for the throne because of his heart for God and his patient insistence on God's timing. And since his visit with the phantom prophet in Endor, we've known the means and timing of Saul's death. It'll be the very next day, in fact, at the hands of the Philistines in the heat of battle, along with his sons. So we know a lot of things. And yet, as we read the final chapter of 1 Samuel, which narrates the final chapter of Saul's life, and as we move into the follow-up story in the next chapter, which details David's response to the news of Saul's death, I think we'll still be surprised by a few things. David's, or sorry, Saul's death is an obvious lesson on the cost of stubborn unfaithfulness, and it's a portrait of how hatred destroys the sacred calling that we all share in God's kingdom. Saul's calling is no different from our calling, to follow God and serve humbly, and hatred and jealousy absolutely tear that apart. So there's, there's a lot of lessons in Saul's, the end of Saul's life. But I think it's how others respond to Saul's death that may contain the most surprising lessons of all for us. Even, even though we're reading it 3,000 years after the fact, I, I think we'll still be surprised by some of these things. So we're going to read the last chapter in 1 Samuel. We'll pause for some comments. Then we'll read the first chapter of 2 Samuel and hopefully find a message for us on the cusp of a new year. So let's read 1 Samuel 31 together. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or else these uncircumcised fellows, these Philistines, will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled, and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled as well. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they buried them, or sorry, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. So that's a pretty gruesome story. 
I would add it's a fitting end, an expected end. But most of all, the word that I would use is ignoble. There is no, there's nothing noble about Saul's death. Nothing noble about the circumstances surrounding his death. Falling on your sword carries an air of dignity, but here I think it shows cowardice. He's afraid, he's abandoned, he's alone, and the Philistines don't even realize him. it's him until the next day. Not a lot of dignity there. Once they do recognize it's Saul, they commit the ultimate indignity by desecrating his remains and posting them as A, a military boast over Saul's people, and B, an idolatrous icon in their temples which suggests that their gods have defeated Israel's god. That's why they put his armor in their temples. They do to him in death exactly what they fear, exactly what Saul feared they would do to him in life if he was captured alive. They cut him with a sword, and they abuse him for the amusement and boasting of Israel's fiercest enemy. An enemy, I might add, who Saul was made king to conquer. That's the whole reason Israel wants a king, was to get rid of the Philistines. Israel demanded a king to deal with these people, and Saul was appointed as that king to deal with them, but rather than dismantle the Philistine threat, it's Saul who is himself dismantled by the Philistines. So there's a real cruel irony there. So there's nothing noble about Saul's last few days, or even his last few years. God had abandoned Saul long ago because Saul had long ago abandoned God. He spends his last living hours in the illegal company of an immoral woman, and when he finds out what his fate will be, he flops on a couch and pouts about it, refusing to eat. Nothing noble about that. He then watches his sons fall. He watches his, his nation be overtaken by their greatest enemy. He is wounded by the arrows himself. He resorts to suicide, and he has his remains desecrated and treated like a trophy. So there is nothing noble about the end of Saul. You may remember from a couple months ago how I mentioned that Saul has long been defined by his weapons. When David goes to battle Goliath, he rejects Saul's weapons, which is a rejection of how Saul would do things. And he uses his own weapon, a stone and sling. Saul's weapons won't get the job done. Later, in his jealous anger, um, Saul would repeatedly toss spears at people he loves in fits of jealousy, um, trying to wipe out uh, David and Jonathan with a spear. And later, he's handling a spear, it says, when he decides to wipe out the priests who had aided and abetted David. David demonstrates his mercy before Saul by sneaking up while Saul is sleeping and stealing that same spear, which shows just how pathetic Saul's pursuit of David had been. Every low point in Saul's life is punctuated by weaponry. There's always some kind of weapon there. And now one last piece of weaponry is present at the very end of Saul. It's a portrait, I think, of what Saul relied on in God's kingdom. He relied on power. Weapons represent military strength, and that's what Saul relied on. He relied on power. But power corrupts. Power entices us away from our true purpose, which is serving the Almighty. Saul was terrified of ceding power to David, and it consumed him. His, his jealousy and his hatred pierced him far deeper than any sword ever could. And all that jealous lust for power leaves him with only a sword as a companion, a dreadful companion, in a death that is without victory, without peace, and without nobility. So it's very fitting that his armor-bearer and his sword are his last 
companions. And his death, Saul's death, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It means terrible things for the nation of Israel, who are now without a king and are incredibly vulnerable to their enemies. This is shown in verse 7 when the Philistines move into Israelite territory as the army of Israel flees before the Philistines now that they see that Saul has fallen. Worse than that, though, worse than just the country being militarily vulnerable, is that theologically in the ancient mind it meant that the Philistine gods had triumphed over Yahweh. This is the end for Saul. They're worried, could it also be the end of the people of Israel in general? God had abandoned Saul had he also abandoned his entire nation. That's where we sit at the end of chapter 31. But also at the end of chapter 31 is a very unexpected response to Saul's death. The people of Jabesh-Gilead, they have special reason to appreciate Saul. Way back in chapter 11, does anybody remember chapter 11? Because I had to look it up again. But way back in chapter 11, Saul performed what might be the only evidence of lowercase m messiahship that he ever showed. It's his only saving act as king. Way back in chapter 11, Nabash the Ammonite had besieged the town of Jabesh-Gilead, and the men of of that town wanted to make a treaty with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites said, I'll only make a treaty with you if you allow me to gouge out the right eye of every man in town and thus dishonor Israel. And understandably, the people of Jabesh-Gilead were like, no, thank you. How about you give us a week to go find help? Which they do. And when the newly anointed Saul hears their plight, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he heads down and he defeats the Ammonites. He saves Jabesh-Gilead and their right eyes, much to the chagrin of every eye patch salesman in Israel. Um, that act was literally the only good thing that Saul did as king, was save the Jabesh-Gileadites. Um, and the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they didn't forget it. And so at great risk to themselves, they repay the king for his strength and mercy to them by showing strength and mercy to Saul in return. They reclaim his body, as well as the bodies of his sons, and give him a more proper cremation and burial, and then undergo a week of of deep grieving for their king. It's a small piece of nobility and dignity and grace given to a man who was mostly ignoble, undignified, and graceless. So it's a small bit of redemption for Saul and a reminder that he was still God's anointed one and he had once served Israel with might and courage. Once. Once he had done that. And with that small bit of dignity and nobility, we then turn to chapter 1, of the second and final book of Samuel. Here we'll find an even more surprising reaction to Saul's death, this time not from some brave men from a town that Saul once saved, but from somebody who Saul had hated with a passion. David has every reason to celebrate the death of his nemesis Saul, which offers him a pathway to the throne of Israel. Finally, David's waited half his life for this moment, for Saul to be out of the way, and now it's here. So let's see how David reacts. Here's chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. Oh, oh, I just lost everything in my Bible. Oops. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. We'll pause there real quick. It's important that the narrator lets us know that David is nowhere near Saul when Saul dies. He reminds us that he's just been fighting the Amalekites and has returned to Ziklag. David is the one who stands to benefit from Saul's death the most. 
and he's recently been chummy with the Philistines, so questions may arise about his involvement in Saul's death. It's crucial to the narrator that we know without a doubt that David had no hand whatsoever in the death of Saul. Why is that so important? Well, because it solidifies his demonstration of his respect for the anointed one of Israel. It also cements his innocence. David had nothing to do with this. But most of all, it confirms David's willingness to patiently wait on the timing of God. He's not going to grab power for himself. He's not going to kill Saul to get him out of the way. He would never do that. He has nothing but the utmost respect for Saul. Um, He will not grab power. Power must be given from on high, even if it takes years and years of suffering and waiting. So it's important that David is far away in Ziklag when Saul dies. It also gives power to the scene that now unfolds as a dirty, grieving stranger approaches David's camp. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. The man answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The man said, All the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I am still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. And we'll pause there. You may have noticed there's some inconsistencies between chapter 31, which tells of Saul's death, and this differing version told by the Amalekite. Here, the Amalekite says that he killed Saul at the request of Saul himself, whereas in chapter 31, Saul is about to die and he falls on his sword. There's no mention of an Amalekite whatsoever. So what gives? Is chapter 31 inaccurate? Or is chapter 1 inaccurate? Or is something else going on here? What do you think is going on? Why is... Why do, are the stories different between 31 and 1? I think uh, I think he's trying to find favor in the eyes of David because uh, Saul has been uh, after David for so long. He thinks that uh, he's going to find favor in the eyes of David if he says that he killed him. And therefore, David's going to reward him for that. I think you nailed it, Henry. And I think, I think that's absolutely... I think the Amalekite is lying. I think he's lying that he's the one who killed David because... Like Henry says, he is 100% trying to gain political points with David. He's trying to win favor, as Henry said. He's assuming that he is bringing David good news. He's bringing the crown. He's bringing the royal armaments. And he's saying, hey, Saul's dead. That must mean you're going to be king. And since I'm the one who brought you this good news, in fact, since I'm the one who killed your biggest enemy, maybe I'll win favor with you. Um, And it makes sense that he would think that. He thinks that he's getting points with the heir apparent to Israel's throne. He's lying to get on David's good side. The Amalekite is expecting rejoicing and rewards from the future king, but what he receives instead is far different. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. 
David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down, and the Amalekite died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. That was not the reaction that the Amalekite was expecting, and may not have been the reaction you were expecting either. In the end, though, neither reaction should be very surprising. Neither the public displays of sorrow that David and his men show for Saul, nor the vicious judgment enforced on the Amalekite are surprising, given what we know about David. Remember, David himself has had two golden opportunities to, to kill Saul himself, and didn't take those opportunities. Why? because of his great respect towards the one whom God himself has anointed. To raise a hand against Saul is, in David's mindset, equal to raising a hand against God himself. And David refuses to be the one who has the audacity, and the selfishly motivated audacity, I might add, to strike down the king. Even if Saul asked for this guy to do it himself, even if Saul said, hey, come and finish me off, even if Saul was about to die anyways, even if this stranger recognizes the authority of David, and that's a good thing, even if all these things were true, and we know they're not true, we know this Amalekite is lying about the whole thing, he's just a wandering stranger who stumbled upon the fallen king, stripped the body, and sought an opportunity for political points with David, so none of it's true. But even if it were true, even if those things were all true, it would still be wrong for this guy to take the life of God's anointed king. That's how sacred that calling is in the eyes of David. Moreover, who did this stranger just say he was? An Amalekite? You mean like the nation that David and his men just pursued through the desert after they'd kidnapped everyone they loved in chapter 30? Like the nation that cannot be trusted and who constantly takes advantage of God's people at their most vulnerable, those Amalekites? It's not surprising that David and his men have no mercy for this stranger. He's a lying, opportunistic Amalekite, an enemy. Um, he thinks he can crown a new king, the Amalekite, but only God can do that. He expects a reward, and instead he receives death for professing to have taken the life of God's anointed one. David himself has endless respect for God's anointed, probably because he himself is also one of God's anointed, but also because of his deep abiding respect for the God who had placed the call on Saul's life and on his own life. Walter Brueggemann, as usual, says it perfectly. So I'm quoting Walter Brueggemann here. It says, The news of Saul's death cannot be unwelcome to David. Saul is dead and David happily is not in any way implicated. This is a moment where a lesser person might have rejoiced and thanked the bearer of good tidings. David, however, is not a lesser person. David responds not in glee, but in sadness, for the king is dead. David is without the joy for which he might be entitled in this moment. He is without the hoped-for gratitude. David thinks first not that his own way to power is now open, but rather that the king is dead, and David grieves, and all his company grieve with him. They grieve for Saul, for Jonathan, for the people of Yahweh, and for the house of Israel. David's treatment of the Amalekite permits David to evidence both his innocence and his loyalty. David, in this act, has avenged Saul and has presented himself as the faithful caretaker of the royal office, end quote. So Israel is in shambles, and a man he had once loved is dead, as is his very best friend in the entire world, 
So it's no wonder that David mourns. It's no wonder he grieves so deeply. God's anointed one is dead, and God's people are vulnerable. A selfish man would look for political advantage or selfish ambition. However, David has God's heart, so he doesn't seek power. Instead, he grieves. He weeps and tears his clothes. He has much to grieve about, and all of that grief flows out of him beautifully and powerfully with the song of lament, which we'll now read to finish off chapter 1. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. So here's David's song of lament. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not on the streets of Ashkelon, those are two cities of the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. So he's saying they were mighty warriors. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. A couple notes. The chorus of this song, if you will, the part that gets repeated over and over, is how the mighty have fallen. That would that would likely be the title of this song, how the mighty have fallen. It's in the first line of the song in verse 19. It's in the last line of the song in verse 27 and is found once more in verse 25. And it's not some smirking statement like, look how the mighty have fallen. Look at this pathetic clown. Look how it, look at his downfall. It's not celebratory in any way. Instead, it's a statement loaded with sadness and regret. Look how the mighty have been brought down. The entire song, the entire song is full of naked grief and it's very powerful. Saul is commemorated at his best, remembered as an elegant gazelle and a swift eagle and a mighty lion. Saul was more worm than gazelle. He was more buzzard than eagle. He was more braying donkey than mighty lion. But he was still God's chosen king. It's not just revisionist history. It's a tribute to a man called and sanctified by God for service to him. David speaks of the military heroics of Saul and fittingly his son Jonathan, who was an exceptionally courageous warrior. You'll probably remember the time Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up a cliff and took on a whole army of Philistines all by themselves. And it's the mention of Jonathan that fills David with the most grief. Jonathan had never forfeited his honor as his, as his father Saul had done. And Jonathan had risked his life to save both Israel nationally and his best friend David personally. David's second last words, his words of deepest sadness, are for Jonathan, who is called a brother, who is very dear to David, and whose love was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. And a quick note on that, some see this verse as evidence of a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David, and that's understandable, the language is very strong. 
It wouldn't change how I view the story if it did mean that, but it doesn't mean that. The Hebrew word for love in this passage is different from the Hebrew word used to describe that kind of relationship, whether heterosexual or homosexual. There's a word for that kind of love, and that's not the word used by David to, to describe Jonathan. Instead, the word for love used here is a word that denotes covenant loyalty. Essentially, David is saying the bond between us was stronger and more unbreakable than the, a vow between a husband and a wife. And now that that relationship has ended, David can't hold back his affection, his praise, and his grief over the loss of his dearest friend, Jonathan. It, it's, it's pretty devastating. So chapter 1, we would expect chapter 1 after the, the fall of Saul. We would expect chapter 1 to be about how the mighty has ris have risen, and the mighty being David, risen to the throne of Israel. But David will not allow that. Instead, it's about how the mighty have fallen. Anointed blood has been spilt, and that blood needs to be lamented, no matter how it might benefit David selfishly for that blood to be spilt. I think we can all learn from that. Death, even the death of our greatest enemy, even a death that stands to benefit us, is still worth mourning. Death is never a victory, necessarily. I mean, it's a victory for those of us who believe, but it's not something to celebrate. As I was reading this and, and writing this, I was wondering what the lesson of the end of Saul might be for us. Like a like I mentioned, there's a warning in Saul's death about faithless living. I'm sure you've gained your own insight into faith and life through this passage and maybe even through this sermon. But to conclude this morning's service, I want us to learn more from David than from Saul. David respects the life of God's chosen one, Saul. Well, guess what? We are all chosen ones as well. Every face I see on this screen is a chosen one, just as much as David or Saul were. We were anointed not with oil on our heads like David and Saul. We were anointed with something much more authoritative and powerful. We were filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's our, our anointing. Our lives are therefore just as special, just as set apart, just as empowered, and just as divinely guided as David's and Saul's lives were. We are like kings in that sense. We are saints, in fact, it says in Hebrews. And here we stand at the end of a very tough year, and our lives look very different than what we're used to. Our sanctified, anointed lives look very different. We may not have been slain and dismembered by the Philistines on some desert hill in the wilderness somewhere, but we have been stripped of a lot of things. I know that, okay, I'm just going to say this. I know that I've harped on this a lot in the past few weeks, including our Christmas Eve service, including last Sunday in church. And I know that people get tired of hearing it. And I know not everyone was as affected by 2020 as others were. If that's you, if if you're tired of hearing it because life is good, I celebrate that. I honestly do. I, I don't mean to assume that everyone had a rough year, that everyone's feeling down or, or anything like that. If you're not, that's fantastic. But for most of us, 2020 presented many opportunities to grieve and we were never given much of an opportunity to do so publicly. The lesson I took from chapters 31 and 1 is that life is sacred. All life. David even grieves over his greatest enemy. All life is sacred. But you know what else is sacred too? Lamenting. 
Lamenting is sacred. The Bible is full of laments. There's even a book of the Bible called Lamentations, a book of lamenting. There's many, many psalms that are just laments. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And this chapter includes one as well. From a man who should be celebrating at the news. Instead, he laments. And that act of lamenting is sacred. David gives voice powerfully to Israel's national grief. Well, I think we're experiencing some national grief as well. David doesn't gloss over the the pain of Israel. He doesn't offer toothless bumper sticker sayings like, oh, it'll all work out. Or when God closes a door, he opens a window. Not that there's not truth to that. It just it doesn't do any good when you're in the middle of tremendous loss and tremendous pain to, to offer such pithy sayings. In the dark of Israel's deep national hurt, David laments. He mourns. He tears his clothes and puts dust on his head and he grieves. He is tremendously, terribly, totally dismantled by the sadness that he feels at the news of the loss of Saul. Now, many of you have felt that way as well. Totally, terribly, tremendously dismantled by 2020. It began, our year began by losing Tara. And we were thankfully able to grieve her together. Although that is an ongoing process and especially for Dave. But many of us lost people who were very close to us this year. Sharon and Mary, I know you both lost parents this year. Um, and, and I may be forgetting other people as well. And if I am, I'm sorry. Those lives that we lost this year were just as sacred as David and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa. There were other types of loss. Grandparents who lost their ability to hold their new grandchildren. Um, financial loss loss of tradition, loss of mental health. And COVID robbed us all of our ability to mourn properly. I really feel bad for those of you who had funerals this year and couldn't be there to grieve with family. That's a terrible thing. And so this past year took much from us. So we're going to grieve together for a few minutes. This doesn't have to take, it'll take as long as it needs to take, um, but I don't anticipate it taking it long. And we're not going to end on a low note But we will allow ourselves, as David does, to stop and feel the weight of a very challenging year. So, if you'd like to, um, please feel free to unmute and share what is something you're grieving about 2020. What is something that you're still in mourning about? What is a loss that's been hard to take? Um, We'll get to those in a second. What are the things you're grieving about? Please share them. I won't compose a lovely song as David does in chapter one, but we will pray together in our sadness and then thank God for his grace and his goodness. That's something that's important for his people to do together is grieve and lament. So what are some things that you are lamenting from 2020? If you're feeling brave enough to share, I'd love to hear it. Barry, were you going to say something? Yeah. um, This is the first time since I left home that um, I have not been able to go home and visit family, and Lorraine and I have been married for 35 years. Or 34, I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that that we haven't been able to, you know, our our family in Canada go back and visit our Illinois family, and that uh, that mom has been basically uh, locked down in her room for nine months. A uh, cheap Although just a kind of a fun thing, on Monday of last week, 
Um, my brother Rick was able to take her out for a drive and take her through the farmyard and kind of drive around town a little bit. And when I first time she's been out of her in you know for a ride in nine months, and um, she was like a little kid <laughs> on Monday night when I visited with her. So that was a joyful moment for her. But uh, yeah, not being able to visit family um, that's that's a tough one for sure. And I think for me, with the restrictions, I think uh, I, I feel a loss of um, part of who I am because I no longer feel like I can be welcoming or hug someone or mm-hmm. um, you know, physically support someone by by being there for them. And it's it's completely different for me. Yeah, no, I hear you. This may sound incredibly creepy, but big part of how I connect with kids is through physical touch, like pats on the head and hugs, especially with the little ones, they need that. And it's been a lot harder to do that. So I, I hear a loss of yourself. You can't really be who you normally are. I, I hear that. Um, and loss of visiting family. That's, that's probably the thing we grieve the most this year is we couldn't go to Ontario. There was a new baby born, a new nephew born in Ontario, and he is adorable and we love him very much. We haven't met him yet. And, uh, we grieve that for sure. Anybody else? He's so cute, though. Yes, he is. Yeah, Dennis here. Uh, as I mentioned in my uh, my Christmas letter, I you know we had the loss of, of my cousin Janice back in April, and she was a real close friend of mine and, and uh, family, and it, it was tough not to be able to go out and. Uh, into the Okanagan in the springtime and, and visit with, with family and things. That's right. And my other point is, uh, my friend David, just across the road here, we used to do breakfast quite a bit, and then, and we've kind of, I, I've, I've been the bad guy there. I, I haven't gone over and had breakfast with Dave and, and had the good long chats. So it's been a real bummer. I know Dave's missed it, and I've missed it too. So, yeah. That's right. The, the loss of social social gathering is it's definitely something to grieve and, and we're missing it right now we're not together in the building having coffee downstairs yeah it it was a tough year it's tough to go through grief like this and I remember um, uh, I, I didn't look it up but I did the presiding message I think I did it like December 30th Last year, we were we were doing that whole series on re. You remember that, Chris? I certainly do. Yeah. So I I, I should have looked it up, but um, I think I did it on um, oh reflection maybe. Yeah. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm very reflective and and I'm not a big New Year's Eve person or nothing like that, but I do take uh, stock and I journal and. The beginning of the year is always kind of a almost a sacred time, and um, it's just so it's just so strange to look back at it now. And I just remember uh, those Sundays before Tara died, and and my last weekend on was Breakforth, and uh, more and Tara didn't feel up to going to Breakforth, so that was like just two days before she died, and. Mm-hmm. And Morgan, uh, the the chair uh, person of Youth for Christ, I invited him, and we went together. And and um, then 
I had the Sunday with Tara, and, and we were practicing uh, Sunday morning to the worship practice, and then I get a call, and 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 she is uh, says you got to come home, Mike. Like she had all this sinus thing going on, and and so we ended up that last Sunday, two days before she died, she didn't get to go to church. You guys didn't get to see her, mm-hmm. and we spent four hours, five hours in the emerge, and then she had some antibiotics, and and Monday, her last day alive, the twentieth. Um, she had a restful day. We watched TV. She went to bed early, and um, I, I don't know why I'm even telling you this, <laughs> but it's this. Yeah, it's so strange. And I remember Angeline shared too. I think the week before, and that was powerful. Um, I I don't know. It's just it's almost surreal. It just is so strange and you, you you go through that cloudy period right after that you can't believe it and still 11 months later it's going to be obviously here on the 21st and it's yeah it's really your heart gets heavy at times and you just wonder why why did she have to leave us all early like this and i uh, I haven't been through this before, and I, I don't know. Like, but like I said in my talk in in July when I talked about grief, and we we bring her forward, we bring her with us. We don't this don't you know leave her behind. Wherever I, whatever I do, and you, some of you know that I, I'm planning to move back to BC and um, onto the island in in the late spring and. Um, I'm moving forward and bringing her with me, and she'll 15 years like together. Uh, we had her. Sometimes we were like that. You guys, Sharon, she'll laugh. Sharon and and uh, we were like oil and water, but I believe God put us together. And uh, I just want to thank all of you for your support this year. Uh, and I know there would have been more uh, hugs and times together if it wasn't for this stupid COVID thing, which this made it all that worse, all much more worse for any of us have to go through grieving. So, um, but I'm I'm just going to um, yeah, lamenting uh, that was lamenting that year. Um, but we do have that hope that God is working in us and, um, but once we have lost this year with the Lord and they're, they're worshiping and, uh, we just got to move, move one step at a time, one day at a time and, and have, have hope that, uh, well, there is hope. It, it's still dark. And we still got COVID, and there'll still be grief, but there is that little glimmer of hope. That's right. And yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dave. And yeah, like you said, compounding the grief is the inability to grieve together. Um, and that's I've I've 
thought of you a lot this year because you couldn't be around people and that's important to you. Um, Angelina, I know you've mentioned many times the grief of, of loneliness, especially when you were in your, your time of um, in hiding and how hard that was on you. Um, Sharon, I know uh, I'm not... I know I'm speaking for you, but you've, we're all proud of you for having been really bold to share this yourself, that the anxiety that came with, with COVID-19 was pretty crippling to you, right, Sharon? And then on top of that, to lose your, your mom, um, that those are big things to lament and we grieve with you, um, those things. And, um, Mary, you have a very fresh loss of somebody who's very important to you, who you love very much, and we're still grieving with you as well. Um, this year's taken a lot from us. Uh, there has been good, obviously. There's still been good in it, and um, like Dave mentioned, there's still hope, peace, joy, love, all those things we talk about in Advent. They're all still very much there, and we're not despairing here. But we are lamenting, and it is okay. In fact, it's important as a community to lament. Uh, it's important to do that. It's important to say, you know what? Life really sucks right now. But it's also important to see where Christ is in those things. And I'm sure you all have other things you could add to this list. I think those of you who spoke up and shared um, things that this year has taken from us. Uh, David, he laments the loss of his king. And you would think that would be an immediate pathway for him to be king. But no, like like our David said, it's step by step every day. And we have to wait until, I think it's chapter 5 or chapter 6, before David is finally made king. So even though Saul's gone, David still has to wait. He, he still has to rely on God's timing. And that's just as true for us. In our darkness, in our pain, in our lament, in our grief, we're still waiting on God's timing. And his timing is good. And he knows what's best. And he is with us in the middle of this lament. So just to close, um, unless anybody else has anything else they want to add. Maybe I'll just add something briefly to bring it back to Jesus' example for us in grief. Because um, this has been helpful for me too. Um, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was having grief over what was to come, not what was what was past, but what was to come, but he was grieving. And in fact, he had so much, you could call it anxiety, you could call it stress, you could call it grief. There was so much going on within him that he was sweating blood droplets. And he asked his friends not for platitudes or, you know, help me figure out a way to make it better or anything. He just asked them to sit with him in his grief. He asked them to pray with him. And even that they couldn't do, they fell asleep. And I know for you, Dave, I don't know if it's still that way, but I know at the beginning of the year after losing um, Hera, it felt so alone. And even when people do come around us to comfort us, uh, um, it often feels very, very alone when we're grieving. But sadly, oftentimes people don't come around us the way that we wish they, they would, whether because of COVID or just because we have a hard time understanding what's going on in someone else's grief if we haven't experienced it. The disciples didn't know what Jesus was going through. They didn't understand, right? They didn't understand the depth of grief he was in. And 
in those moments when it feels like we're all alone and no one really does understand, or even when it doesn't just feel that way, when we are alone and no one does understand, Jesus is with us and he does. He understands just like as Jesus was there, uh, grieving to the point of sweating blood droplets in the garden, his father was with him and his father wasn't visible to him either. Just as when we feel alone in our grief, our Father God, He's not always visible or tangible in any way to us, but He's there with us. And um, I guess that's just sort of perspective looking back at Jesus again and the the both human and God part of Jesus. Um, Something that is encouraging to me when I feel really alone in my grief because, because no one can understand my grief so so people don't tend to enter into it because they they don't know how to. Um, actually, I've been it's been more difficult since coming out of hiding to just go back to what you were saying, Chris. But it's been a very difficult year for me, mainly because no one understands. So they tend just not to say anything or to ask how you're doing or to enter into anything other than just like, "How's ministry? We're praying for ministry," but but it because it wasn't a person that died or something that happened that's understandable in North America. It's very alone. And in that, you know, God has been the one who is there. And and just like his father was with him in the garden. And I just wanted to to maybe just share that, that I've experienced with the Lord this year. Sure. Thank you. And, yeah, we, we talked a lot about Isaiah 9-6, about how Jesus is wonderful counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and and the comfort that that gives. He experienced the garden, and he knows whatever depths of pain we're feeling, whatever laments we have, like you said, he's experienced that, and he's with us. The other really great portrait of, of grief in Scripture is Job, when Job loses everything, and he's sitting in the dust, and his friends come, and they just sit beside him, and nobody says anything for seven days. And... The problem starts when they try to argue with him about why this is happening. It's, it's, it's not about why. It's, it's who is with you in the midst of it. God and the people you love. Um, so in our lament, that's why I wanted us to lament together, is to do so together so then we can see hope, we can see peace, joy, love, um, so we can see Christ. So I'm going to pray. Um, mention some of these things specifically, uh, some of these griefs, and um, and not stay. <laughs> Bill mentioned you wanted it, communion to be upbeat. Well, sorry that I'm not. This was not very upbeat. This was very downbeat. Um, but they go together. They 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 always go together. The downbeat and the upbeat. Um, so let's pray. Um, Jesus, as we head into a new year. Uh, we reflect, as Dave mentioned, we reflect on the year that just happened, and there was a lot taken from us, um, not being able to visit people we love, whether it's family or friends or community, um, seeing loved ones be locked down, like my grandma, like uh, Barry's mom or Lorraine's dad, not being able to be ourselves, not being able to be friendly and open and um, physical demonstrations of affection, all those things, not being able to do those things feels like a loss. Um, We have felt financial loss because of COVID. We have felt um, loss of mental health stability because of COVID. We have felt loss of social life because of COVID. 
and that's just COVID. There's been other losses that have nothing to do with COVID. Um, we think of Tara, and we still grieve her. She was such a special person in our community. We grieve with Dennis over the loss of Cousin Janice. Um, we grieve with Sharon over the loss of her mom, and Mary over the loss of her dad, and Kennedy over the loss of her great-uncle. Um, all these people we love who were taken from us, we grieve and we lament that, and it's confusing and we don't really understand it. But in all these things, as we say every Sunday, we pray for your will to be done, just like Jesus did in the, in the garden. We pray for your will. We know that there's suffering in this life. We know that there's pain and hardship. We lament all the things we've lost and continue to not have. But we do trust you, Jesus. We do love you. We are committed to following you. And we do see the hope and the comfort and the peace that you offer. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here today and that we can lament together. Uh, even those of us who aren't grieving can still grieve with those who are. Um, we celebrate uh, the togetherness that we have in you and we get so much strength from each other and we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we thank you for leading and guiding us as your anointed ones. We thank you um, for the life that we have in you that no matter what bad thing happens, that we always have you and that there's always hope and joy and peace and most of all love. So thank you. We grieve together. Um, but we, we are empowered by you, Holy Spirit. No matter what darkness we're in, we have light. So thank you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So all life is sacred. Um, some things are worthy of lament. That's what I get from chapters 31 and 1. Thank you. So, I'm sorry this went so long. I didn't intend for it to be this long. But thank you for participating. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, thank you for your prayers. And thank you for being here together. Thank you to those of you who shared. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, uh, we, we, we do need to look forward to a new year. And, and uh, we need to be strong at this time as well. That's right. Just don't say it can't get any worse because... Thank <laughs> <I> can... you. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Our lives are therefore just as special, just as set apart just as empowered and just as divinely guided as David's and Saul's lives were. But we will allow ourselves, as David does, to stop and feel the weight of a very challenging year. It is the new year of 2021, and That's... it's going to be better. There you go. Zoe says it's going to be better, so it's going to be better. Do you think you want to come say goodbye? Oh. I come. <laughs> <laughs> Wait.